We are going to be starting a new series this morning on Titus, and I am really looking forward to this this one here. Um, let's pray. Father in heaven, we have heard your word this morning, and pray that uh, you will grant us your spirit to contemplate the words as we look into this passage, um, study its depth, and Lord, we ask that you would Help us to receive it, to hear from you, that it would transform our hearts and our minds, that we might live lives that reflect yours each and every day, in Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. I've entitled this message, Adorn the Gospel, and some of you, if you're familiar with Titus, might be going, what does this passage have to do with adorning? But I'm doing something a little bit different here to just kind of change things up. And this is really going to be the practical application at the end. Adorn the gospel. Uh, That's the call to. So we're going to start with that, just so you'll keep that in mind as we're moving through the text here this morning. Um, The aim of Titus, just as a book, if I had to kind of summarize, what is Titus going to be, uh, what is Paul going to be telling us through this letter to Titus. And I would say it this way um, as concisely as I can. It is to know God. It is to grow in godliness. It is to do good in making the gospel attractive. So it's to know God. It is to grow in godliness. And it's to do good in making the gospel attractive. So that will be Pastor Jake and I's goal as we're going throughout this study is to pull these things, these truths out as it's presented in Scripture and then help you to apply them to your lives so that you can adorn the gospel, both outwardly in word and in deed. Last week, um, I brought to you a message, the making disciples the big picture, and we looked at Revelation chapter 7. And, and I wanted to pull back the curtain, if you will, on God's plan for us, uh, our, our destiny, our deliverance and our destination. We talked about those things. And I hope you gleaned what, we're, what all of this work of the church, the person and work of Christ, is leading toward. Uh, we talked about our destiny as being one of those in that redeemed throng of people in the heavenly realm that are from every nation, tribe, and tongue. We spoke about our deliverance in Christ Jesus. We were the ones who come out of this great tribulation, and we are the ones who have been redeemed because we have dipped our robes in the blood of Christ. And then we looked at our destination, which will be to be in the presence of God and worshiping both the Father and the Son with the rest of the heavenly hosts. And I had as a fourth point on there our duty. And I didn't really spend that much time on our duty. But God providentially had already determined through our selection of Titus that we would actually get into what is our duty. It is to know God. It is to grow in godliness. It is to do good in making the gospel attractive. 
And so we're going to talk about those very things today, what it is that God has called us to do, what Christ has asked us to do now that we understand the big picture. This is Paul's way of pulling back the curtain. Last week we pulled a back the curtain from the Heavenly Father to say, this is what it's all looking forward to. This is the big picture. This is the way things begin for all eternity. And so Paul pulls back the curtain and he wants us to see that while we are here in this earthly life, what things look like to live in a godly manner. And so these verses are Hat. Paul in his epistles, if you are familiar and have read them through or just read a few of them, he always has a salutation. He always begins as you might begin in writing a letter, addressing who he is, who's writing the letter, and ultimately who he's writing to. In this case, it's Titus. Uh, we studied the letters to Timothy, First and Second Timothy, and they were to Timothy. The church at Philippi, it was to the entire church and the overseers and the deacons. All of these letters have him as the author and a recipient, whether it's an individual or a church. And yet even the letters to the individuals, when you come to the end and his benediction, it's always in the plural when it comes to you. So it wasn't meant just for individuals. It's also meant for us. So I want you to keep that in mind this morning. Titus is no different than any of these other letters. Yet what is different about Titus is this. These four verses that form the salutation are a little bit different than Paul's practice. Paul's practice has generally been the salutation and then to break out in prayer and in thanksgiving for whoever he is writing to, the church at Thessalonica, the church at Colossae. And in that prayer, he will outline the things that he's going to talk about. It is a style that he has. He is actually praying for the church, for the individual who he is speaking to, And in that prayer, he is revealing the things that he's going to address with them. But in this particular letter, he packs it all in the salutation. Some pastors will take this and break it down verse by verse by verse. Because it is packed with doctrine. If you were to look at this and line by line, take out some of the teachings that come in this, You would get a teaching of election, of predestination. You would get one of hope and one of faith and one of learning the Word of God. You would get one of what it means to be part of the common faith. All of these come into play. But I want to bring this to you this morning from a little bit different lens. As I was preparing for this, and I've taught through Titus before, I happened to pick up a a commentary by Brian Chappell. He's the stated clerk of the PCA. And he used a lens of grace in looking at this particular passage. And as I was looking through it, I said, wow, I've never quite seen it that way before. 
I mean, I want to dive in and here's what the Word says and that's what I'm going to preach upon and give application to. But Dr. Chapel takes a step back and, and he says, you know, we need to remember that as believers in Jesus Christ, it's all about grace. This is a greeting of grace. And so I'm going to use some of his material here this morning. Not all of it, but some of it. Because I like the way he looked at this. He looks at grace for a person. Paul, the writer of this particular letter. Grace for a purpose. Whether it's for Paul or whether it's for any one of us. And then grace for the message that he gives and the message that we should give. So grace for our person, grace for our purpose, and grace for our message. And those will be the three points that we look at this morning. Now for a little bit of background before we just dive right in about Titus. There's not a whole lot that's said about Titus. Timothy, on the other hand, was one that we learned quite a bit about. We know his grandmother's name is Lois. We know his mother's name is Eunice. We know he lived in Lystra. We know that he was chosen by uh, Paul to go ahead and join him on missionary journeys. We see how he was delegated to go to different churches at different times. He was really Paul's right-hand man. Titus is a little bit of an enigma. We don't know that much about him. He's not mentioned in the book of Acts at all. But we do see a mention of Titus in the book of Galatians. And in chapter 2 of Galatians, verses 1 through 10, and this becomes important here because Paul is talking about whether one has to be circumcised or not circumcised. And Titus is a Gentile. And Paul contends that we do not have to be circumcised and become Jews to then become Christians and followers of Jesus Christ. And we learn that about Titus. Now Titus is actually not mentioned in Acts, but he is the object of the council at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. He is the object lesson that is in mind when Paul and Barnabas go, God called us to go to the Gentiles, to the uncircumcised, just as Peter was chosen to go to the circumcised. And to cut to the chase, that Jerusalem council simply said this, you come to Christ through faith alone, by grace alone. It's not about anything that you do, not even circumcision. And so really from a background standpoint, that's what we know about Titus. We also know that Paul left him at Crete. So Paul was doing a church planting expedition at Crete. And Titus was with him to start that church. And so then Paul leaves and leaves it to Titus to, as we'll learn next week, put in order what remains, which is interesting. Paul does something that I think we overlook in his missionary journeys. His missionary journeys being sent out by the church at Antioch, 
along with Barnabas to start with, and then later Silas, was a church-planting expedition. It was taking the gospel to different locales and looking for the Jews first, and then the Gentiles, giving the gospel, starting a church. So it was a true, what we would call in our century, missionary work. But that's not all Paul did. If you read through those very carefully, Paul goes back to the churches from time to time to strengthen them. So when we talk in terms of making a disciple, we do both give the gospel to those who have not heard so they may believe, but we also give the gospel to those who do believe so that they can mature in the faith so that they can do the work of ministry. Paul's mission is the mission of the church, to reach and save the lost and to build them up in the faith so that they can reach the lost. That's what our vision is about here at Trinity. Making disciples and maturing disciples. And so that is what was taking place that is the background. We see Titus is left to Crete to do that. Now Paul is away and he simply wants to write and give him some instructions. But he does so, as Dr. Chapel says, through a lens of grace. So let's look at these greetings of grace. First, grace for his person. It begins by saying that Paul is a servant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus. The word that is used here for servant means slave. But Paul wasn't just any slave. Yes, he was bought by Christ. Christ paid for his sins by going to the cross. But God, but what Paul understood was the love and the grace of Christ. So this idea of being a servant really models in his own life, in Paul's life, that which is spoken of in Exodus chapter 21. Now after the Ten Commandments were given in Exodus chapter 20, something very, very interesting starts at the beginning of Exodus chapter 21. It talks about Hebrews, Jews that give themselves into slave, slavery. They don't have any other choice than to come under the care of someone else. And Jewish law said that that person under servitude, slavery, would serve for seven years and then would be set free by the owner. That was the deal. But, in this passage, and this is where I think it speaks to Paul and him being a servant of God right here. It says, if that slave loves his master and does not want to go out, he will become that master's servant for life. 
That master will take that servant and he will take him to a doorpost and he will take an awl and he will punch it through his ear, marking himself out for that master. He belongs to him. He is loyal to him. He serves him and him alone. And he will do it out of love for the rest of his life. When Paul says that he is a servant of God, he is by grace and by love. He, by grace, was on that Damascus road. You know the story. Jesus came to him and appeared to him on the road. Stopped him in his tracks. And at that point, he becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, a bondservant of God. But he is also an apostle. He is also a messenger. He is to take the message of Christ, the gospel of Christ, to the world. Paul was a person, before he came to Christ, that was zealous. He was doing all that he could that he thought the Scriptures said about God to keep him holy and not let anything else come in between. He saw the way, the t- Christ and the teaching of Christ, as being a detriment to God. And out of his holy zeal, he was doing all that he could to squash this. He looked to seek righteousness in this. To look good in the eyes of God. And yet all of that is reversed through the appearing of Jesus Christ, who in that moment saved him brought him to himself, and gave him a purpose. What we learn from Paul is that through Christ's pardon of sin, saving the worst of sinners, he made him useful for his own work, all by grace. Paul captures this thought in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Where he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our, our God overflowed for me with the faith and love that is in Christ Jesus. The grace for our person is a grace that is free and abundant. Each and every one of us need to understand that the grace that we received is free and abundant. We don't deserve it. And yet we have it. The question is now, do we live in light of that? You are a changed person. Each and every one of us in this room is like Paul. We are both a love slave, if you will, of God who seek to serve Him and Him alone and then also to take the message of Christ to the world. Well, this is His person. The grace that is given is given abundantly to every person who comes to Christ. What about the grace for His purpose? 
Paul had a big purpose that was given to him. It says that for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. His purpose, his mission was to take this message that he was given, this message of grace, to all who would believe. Some of us don't like that word elect. We, we don't like words like election and predestination. We, we think that that makes God some kind of biased person. But grace is such that He chooses some to believe. Without grace, none would believe. None at all. But Paul doesn't really focus on the election as much as he does on what is to happen. You see, his purpose is to take the gospel to those whom God has chosen. That means that when we share the gospel, brothers and sisters, there will be those that receive it. Election doesn't guarantee salvation. But election makes that possible when they hear the gospel and receive the gospel. Election, in other words, election doesn't save. It marks the person out that then when they hear the word of God, they receive it and believe it. And so that's a grace that comes that is, so, that is very, very merciful. So the faith is of the elect is that which is his purpose. And then his purpose is to give them the knowledge of the truth, the Word of God, the gospel, through and through, which accords to godliness. This is gospel math. Now, some people don't like math, but this is simple here. This is like one plus one equals two. Faith, one plus knowledge of truth equals godliness. One who has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has done for us knows that, and this word for knowledge here means an intimate knowledge of the person. One who has faith through an intimate knowledge, not just a head knowledge, but it goes to the heart, will then pursue godliness. Why? Because they've been transformed. They've been changed. This is all grace. It's a merciful grace. We know from Paul's letter to the Ephesians that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, that is not of ourselves. There is no works that we bring to the table. This is all a means of grace by God's mercy alone. The next thing that he gets into is that this faith plus knowledge that leads to godliness helps us to rest in the hope that we have of eternal life. We have hope, but it's not a fickle hope. It's not a wishful thinking. 
It is one that we know is sure. And how do we know that it's sure? The text tells us it's because God promised it and God does not lie. That is the hope that we have and that we rest in is that we are His people. One other thing that marks this grace is its duration. And Paul does something interesting here. He talks about the promise that was made before the ages began and that at a proper time it is made manifest and known. And we saw last week what the future holds. Paul receives the gospel from Christ. It's not his gospel. He calls it his gospel. But it is Christ's gospel that is given to him. And at these crossroads, Brian Chappell talks about this, it is as if Paul is saying he's at the crossroads and he looks to the left and he sees before the ages began the promises made that God would save a people through Jesus Christ. And he begins to do so through the preaching and teaching of the gospel that Paul is doing now. And then Paul looks to the right and he sees what would be Revelation 7, the future hope that is consummated. That is the motivation that he has. And the duration of the grace is eternity. Before all time began, now in the present and on into the future, it is a never-ending grace. Well, what about the message of grace? What about the message of grace. We see here that Paul talks about Titus being his true child in the common faith. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This message of Christ coming, Christ dying, Christ being buried, Christ being raised again, this message is our common faith. The common faith is not like going into a delicatessen and seeing a menu of items on the board. And you go, hmm, I'm going to have the turkey sandwich. And I'm going to have mayo. No onions. Yes, lettuce. No cheese. And someone else comes in and goes, you know, I'm going to have the turkey sandwich, but I want pickles on mine and I want this, that, and the other. The common faith gets into the essentials of Jesus Christ. His death, His person, His resurrection. That's what we have in common. But the other thing about the common faith is it's one faith. It's not a faith for the Jew and it's not a faith for the Gentile. Now I want you to see that Paul had a reminder for most of his days that put this reality forward. I had never saw this in this particular passage until this week. Timothy was a Jew. His mother and grandmother were Jews. And he came to faith in Jesus Christ. Titus was a Gentile. Titus was not circumcised. And he came to faith. And Paul says of both Timothy and Titus, you are my true son in the faith. 
both Jew and Gentile. The hostility has been removed, as he's told the Ephesians church. And the two have become one. We are you, Timothy, you, Titus, and myself. We are one family. That is the common faith that comes through our union with Christ. There should be nothing that separates believers if we come to be one family. This is the, the grace of having one family under one head, Jesus Christ. Paul called Titus his true child in the common faith. And then goes on to speak about the grace and peace that comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is unmerited favor. We are unworthy of the gospel and yet we receive that grace. Grace for our person. Grace for our purpose. Grace for the message of preaching one God in three persons. The Son coming to live, to die, and to rise for our salvation. This peace that comes reconciles us to God and reconciles us to one another. That's what we can rest in. So we have this message. This message of grace for the person. Grace for the person that is abundant. We have this message of grace for the person, the pur- purpose, which is abundant and never ending, and that the grace that unites us as a family. So, with that, that knowledge of grace for our person, our purpose, and our message. We should know that it is abundant, it is merciful, it is never-ending, and it unites. That is what we should put on each and every day. We adorn the Gospel when we embrace the grace that is abundant to our personal lives. We adorn the Gospel when we embrace the grace that is merciful, that reached us when we were sinners. We embrace the fact that this grace is never-ending, like a fountain that cannot be exhausted. And we embrace this grace that can take a rebel like us and unite us to Christ and each other as one family. Dr. Chapel, to end his commentary on this section, wrote this. For the person who says, my sin is too large or has persisted for too long for God to forgive, we say, but His grace is abundant. For the sensitive soul that despairs in the face of personal weakness, saying, I'm not able to measure up to God's requirements, we say, God does not save you on the basis of your ability, but bestows His grace by mercy alone. For those who are tormented that says I can't resist temptation but for a while to them we say but his grace is forever or for the timid who out of fear or say that I am not fit 
I don't belong. We say the grace of God, our Father, unites us in one family in Christ Jesus. Well, may we consider the grace of this greeting for our person, our purpose, and our message. And as we live this week, let us wear it, let us adorn it, and let us speak it to others. Let us pray. Father, we do thank You for Your Word this morning, for the grace that You give us that is abundant, that is merciful, that is never-ending, and it unites. Lord, let us be ever mindful of that, even as we come to this table, as we seek to receive your means of grace to us through this bread and through this wine to strengthen us. In Christ's name, amen.